Fox News stands up for Laura Ingram. Democrats struggle for a message. And we have for you the worst dating hot take of the year, bar none. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. All right, so we have a lot to get to today. We are going to get to President Trump going after Amazon.com. We are also going to get to one of the worst tweets I have ever seen proving that some members of the left are clearly fascists. It's a pretty amazing tweet. But first, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Skillshare. So Skillshare is the place to go if you want to improve your resume. You know, you have to constantly be improving your resume in today's job market. You need to be broadening and deepening your skill set if you want to get paid more. And if you just want to get a new job or you just want to start a side business. Well, that's what Skillshare is for. It's an online learning platform with over 18,000 classes in design, business, technology, and more. You can take classes in graphic design, social media marketing, illustration, mobile photography, you name it, they've got it. So whether you're trying to deepen your professional skill set, start a side business, or explore a new passion, Skillshare is for you. We here at The Office use Skillshare for search engine optimization classes and social media marketing classes. I've used Skillshare myself for watercolors. So, you know, I'm just a great artist now. But Skillshare is fantastic at what they do. And again, their library of classes is almost endless. I mean, you're talking 18,000 classes. Pretty amazing. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. You get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. So Skillshare is offering Ben Shapiro Show listeners two months of unlimited access to over 18,000 classes for just 99 cents, which is a solid deal. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash Shapiro. Again, Skillshare.com slash Shapiro to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash Shapiro and get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. Again, there's a reason why I am constantly focusing on self-betterment here on the Ben Shapiro Show and Skillshare helps you do it. Skillshare.com, promo code Shapiro, Skillshare.com slash Shapiro. Okay, so we begin today with the update with regard to Fox News and Laura Ingram. So obviously over the last week, David Hogg launched a boycott. He's a Parkland survivor. And he launched a boycott against Laura Ingram on Fox News because she said something that hurt his feelings about his college admissions. And finally, Fox News came out and defended their host, which is great. They should be doing this. So in a statement, Fox News co-president Jack Abernathy wrote, quote, we cannot and will not allow voices to be censored by agenda-driven intimidation efforts. We look forward to having Laura Ingram back hosting her program next Monday when she returns from spring vacation with her children. Good for Fox. The reality is advertisers will come back to Laura's show. Not that many advertisers dropped her show in the first place, and it wasn't her biggest advertisers that dropped her show to start. But it's pretty amazing that they'd gone this far in the first place. On Saturday, as we played yesterday, David Hogg appeared on CNN and called Ingram a bully after attempting to destroy her business for suggesting that he was whiny about his college admissions. Pretty amazing, amazing sequence of events. But again, demonstrative, demonstrative of the fact that when it comes to the left's agenda, you know, reality and, and proportionality have nothing to do with anything. Now, speaking of reality and proportionality, well, Laura Ingram is going to survive all of this. The media will get over it until the next time there's a ginned up outrage and they decide to finish off some sort of conservative host. But speaking of proportionality and lack thereof, the students over at Parkland are very, very upset. The reason they are upset now is because one of the security measures that's being taken, uh, that's being taken into consideration now being implemented at Parkland, uh, at the Parkland School, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, is clear backpacks for the kids. And the kids are very, very upset about this. So they are all tweeting out all of this stuff about why the clear backpacks are so terrible. And there's certain irony to a lot of the gun control students suggesting their rights are being taken away because they have to carry around clear backpacks. So Lauren Hogg, who is David's brother, and also goes to the high school, she said, my new backpack is almost as transparent as the NRA's agenda. I feel so safe now. As much as I appreciate the effort, we as a country need to focus on the real issue instead of turning our schools into prisons. Hashtag clear backpacks, hashtag march for our lives. So one quick note here. 
you know, why is it that my rights have to be taken away? You're essentially turning my entire gun safe into a clear backpack and then cleaning it out because something bad happened that has nothing to do with me or my gun ownership. Sarah Chadwick is another student over there. She says, tomorrow we will have to go through security checkpoints and be given clear backpacks. My school is starting to feel like a prison. Well, your school a few moments ago was a shooting gallery for an evil human being. So it seems to me that if you are suggesting that hundreds of millions of Americans be deprived of their firearms, this is a better solution. I don't think it's a great solution by any stretch of the imagination, but the, the outsized outrage about having to carry around a clear backpack you don't have a right to a backpack that is non-transparent in school. Do I think this is a great idea, by the way? No. Do I think this is going to do anything? No. Do I think this is moral panic and, and overblown? Absolutely. Do I think, however, that it is less intrusive of American rights for you to carry a clear backpack to a high school where you have no actual right to privacy? Or do I think it's more of an intrusion on rights for you to remove full-scale Second Amendment rights? I'm going to go the latter. Delaney Tars, another student over there, and she tweets out, starting off the last quarter of senior year right with a good old violation of privacy. Again. If you're going to complain about violations of privacy in the same sentence where you suggest that the government should come into my house and remove my rifle, there's a bit of irony there. That's all I'm suggesting. Lex Michael, another student there. Interestingly enough, when I requested more government regulation, I said on guns, not on my backpacks. Thanks for trying to speak for me, though. So again, quick question. You don't have a right to your backpack. You don't have a right to a non-transparent backpack. And I, as I say once again, do I think this is a smart security idea? No, I think it's a pretty stupid security idea. I think that the idea that you're going to be able to view everything through a transparent backpack is not even true. You can always hide a gun behind a book or inside a book if you wanted to, presumably. But the the basic logic that's being pushed here is that rights are being violated when high school students don't have a right to privacy in their backpacks. But no rights are being violated when they call for a vast removal of protected weaponry under the Second Amendment from a bunch of strangers who have done nothing to actually create all of this problem. It's, it's just an amazing thing. It didn't stop there. There are even more of these. Uh, Jacqueline Corn wrote, thousands of clear backpacks were donated to MSD. It's a shame because they should have been given to a school that actually needs the supplies. But since we're, give it, but since we're stuck with them, I decided to make the most of the situation and decorate. Okay, well, good for you. So you put March for a Live on your backpack. It's, it's just the lack of proportionality here is, is, completely, is, is completely incredible. John Barnett, another student, said, if our school board seriously believes that clear backpacks will be a key factor in keeping students safe, then every elementary, middle, and high school student should have one. School shootings can happen anywhere, so why are we only getting these backpacks? We need real change. Okay, this, I think, is my favorite tweet. This is my favorite tweet because the suggestion now is that if clear backpacks were to make a school safe, then everybody should have one. Well, that's pretty much what we're saying about law-abiding citizens and guns. Right? That we think that law-abiding citizens ought to have guns to keep schools safe, and therefore, pretty much everybody should have one. So the logic completely escapes them. They make the argument with regard to clear backpacks, but not with regard to guns. Pretty incredible. And the stupid arguments didn't stop there. So last night, I got into another flame war with Piers Morgan on Twitter. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, I did a, a pretty famous debate with Piers Morgan on gun control after the Sandy Hook shootings in January 2013 on his program. It ended poorly for him. Uh, his show was, uh, was it dropped dramatically in the ratings after I appeared on his show. Uh, he ended up losing his show about a year later. Uh, and yesterday, he decided to go at it with me again on the Second Amendment. And I, I will just say it didn't go well for him. During that debate, one of the things that I did is I brought a copy of the Constitution, a pocket Constitution, and I handed it to Piers Morgan. And he is still rankling about this some five years later. It's now 2018, and he's still angry about all of this. And so somebody sort of, Somebody sort of tweaked him about it yesterday on Twitter, suggesting that hopefully he kept that silly little book. He called the Constitution a silly little book, a silly little book when I handed it to him on the air. 
Somebody tweeted at him, hopefully you kept that silly little book Ben Shapiro gave you on set. It would come in handy now. And Piers responded by saying, what was silly about it was the size, like its owner. I prefer my copies of the Constitution and my political pundits to be substantial. So this is Piers' go-to is that he's a tall fellow, which, all right. Uh, And so I tweeted back at him, I also like my constitutions like I like my pundits, Americans, and concerned with protecting rights rather than infringing upon them. And it seemed to me, honestly, like he was overcompensating for a rather small set of inalienable rights. So he's he's overcompensating. Uh, Beyond that, I think that it is quite possible that uh, that he has a constitution inferiority complex. He may be be overcompensating for some things. My favorite part of of the back and forth with Piers Morgan yesterday on Twitter is at one point I said that he is uh, that he was interested in violating inalienable rights, and Piers Morgan wrote back, "It's unalienable." Try reading your Declaration of Independence. Well, as I said to Piers Morgan, I have read it. Its central contention contention is that we don't actually have to let's take advice on the nature of our rights from British douchebags like Piers Morgan. That's actually pretty much the basis of the of the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> so, well done, Piers Morgan. By the way, just side historical note: Piers, do not start trying to cite American history to me. Okay, Thomas Jefferson wrote in the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, inalienable. It's written on the Jefferson Memorial, inalienable, not unalienable. Abraham Lincoln cited it as inalienable. Bill Clinton cited it as inalienable. Barack Obama cited it as inalienable. So Piers Morgan is now the grammar police when he's not attempting to take away everybody's guns. Obviously, we did a good job in breaking away from Britain so he wouldn't have to listen to people like Piers Morgan. And one of the reasons this whole debate keeps burning out is that it constantly devolves. Democrats are constantly accusing Republicans of hating children, and Republicans are responding by saying, you guys just want to take our guns, which is actually true. But there was some common ground for a brief moment in time after the Parkland shooting. So Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, whom Parkland students castigated as akin to a murderer right on CNN, he was actually willing to come to the table with Bill Nelson, who is the Democratic senator from Florida, trying to push gun violence restraining orders. Gun violence restraining orders are these measures that are designed to prevent the severely mentally ill from getting guns. Relatives, friends, family, they can go to a judge and ask that judge to remove the right to purchase a gun or own a gun so long as you're a danger to yourself or others. This was a common sense measure that both sides were attempting to come together over, but the left can't even decide what it wants. The left decided to ignore all of these common efforts and decided instead to yell at each other about gun control. They decided to yell at each other about gun control because, again, they have no real decisive, cohesive message, even about what to do about guns. So Doug Jones, for example, the Democrat from Alabama, he's not even willing to embrace the full gun control agenda of the Democratic Party. I'm not sure I can go that far just yet, uh, George. Uh, we've got to get done what I think can be done right now. Let's reach, reach across and within our own party to do those things that we can do. Uh, and that, that to me is where I want to focus. I really don't believe that a gun ban is feasible right now. And I think that there are things that can be done that we need to look at. And I think I outlined most of those uh, in my speech on the floor uh, last week. Like, So as you can see, even the left is deeply split on these issues. Well, that means if you're deeply split on the issue, the easiest thing to do is instead to attack your political opposition as uncaring, feeling, rude, cruel. That's the only way that they can win. They can't stick to message. They can't try to save lives because that wouldn't help them politically. And in just a second, I'm going to talk about the left's real perspective on what, ail- on what ails America, because it's not going to sell. 
This is why the left is still having a tough time in a country where Donald Trump does not have a high public approval rating despite his contentions otherwise. I'll discuss in just a second why that is. But first, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at FilterBuy. So when is the last time you check the filters in your central air system? It's one of these annoying things. You know, kick it down the road. You don't think about it. And then the next thing you know, you are breathing in mold and dust, and it's just disgusting. You're not only aggravating your health, by the way, you also might be destroying your HVAC system, which could lead to thousands of dollars in repairs. So stop procrastinating and visit my friends over at FilterBuy, America's leading provider of HVAC filters for homes and small businesses. They carry over 600 different filter sizes, even custom ones, all shipped free within 24 hours. Plus, they're manufactured right here in the United States. FilterBuy offers a multitude of MERV options all the way up to hospital grade. Check your system specifications so you can pick the right option, maximize efficiency, and elevate the quality of the air that you breathe. Set up auto delivery. You're never going to need to think about air filters again because they just show up at your house and you save 5%. Save money, save time, and breathe better with FilterBuy. That's FilterBuy.com. FilterBuy.com again. There's no excuse for you and your kids breathing in dirty air when you can solve that with one click of your mouse. FilterBuy.com. FilterBuy.com. Check it out and ensure that all the air that you are breathing is absolutely clean. And get on their plan and save 5% so that it's shipped to you on a regular basis and you never have to think about it ever again. Okay, so as I say, you know, the left is struggling here. Even though they thought they had a lot of momentum, a lot of impetus on the gun control issue, they've blown all of that by alienating so many Americans. And you wonder, why is it that they're doing that? I mean, right now, there's a rather unpopular Republican president by polling numbers. You know, Trump today was tweeting out that he's doing really well in the Rasmussen poll. You can't cite one poll. You have to cite the poll average. The poll averages tend to be pretty close. And for all those people who said in the last election cycle, the polls were wrong. No, certain polls were wrong. The national poll average was exactly correct. It had Hillary Clinton winning by anywhere from three to five points. She won the national popular vote by about three points. Okay, that is not a suggestion she won the election, but it is a suggestion that national polling on average is pretty good. Okay, the national polling average for President Trump is not very good. And yet Democrats are still struggling. Democrats may not win back the House. Every time it seems like the Democrats leap out to a big lead, that lead immediately begins to recede because Democrats are so extreme. So what exactly is driving the extremism of the Democrats? Why can't they just sit there and say, listen, we don't like Trump. You don't like Trump. Nobody likes Trump. Vote for us. Why isn't that their platform? Why isn't their platform? You know, we just want to be more moderate and provide a check on the president. This is what parties normally say in years when they are not in the White House and it's an off-year election. Why can't they just do that? The answer is because there's a deep-seated instinct on the part of some folks on the left that does not like what America is, does not like what America is, and not just points out problems with America, but thinks that these problems go straight to the heart of the country and in many cases are unsolvable. So there's a really fascinating piece over at The Atlantic uh, by a guy named William Barber in the Martin Luther King issue, and he talks about the real crisis that is ailing America. And here's what he says. He says, four diseases, all connected, now threaten the nation's social and moral health. Racism, poverty, environmental devastation, and the war economy sanctified by the heresy of Christian nationalism. That's some pretty extreme stuff. That's some pretty extreme stuff that William Barber is putting out there. So since the 2016 presidential election, when white rage propelled a candidate endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan into the White House, racism has been, racism has been more prominent in public life. If you really think that Trump won because he was winking and nodding at the KKK, uh, no. No, if you recall, I shellacked him on the air when he refused to condemn the KKK. And then, of course, he came out within 24 hours and condemn the KKK, not because of me, but because Trump knew that this was an unwinnable battle and he had said the wrong thing. And so he moved on beyond that. Okay, but the left is, is really ensconced in this vision of the United States as a deep, dark place. Okay, in a second, I'm going to explain how deep that vision goes and why it bodes ill for their electoral prospects. So here is what this article says. It says, again, four diseases all connected 
threaten the nation's social and moral health. Racism, poverty, environmental devastation, and the war economy. First of all, racism in the United States was at an all-time low before the, before the election of Barack Obama. It was actually declining, and then Barack Obama was elected, and he decided to polarize people for political gain based on race and ethnicity. That was a problem. Poverty in the United States. Okay, If you think that poverty in the United States is the chief problem crippling the United States, you do not have any global perspective. The poorest people in America are rich by global standards. According to Pew Research, 9 out of 10 Americans are rich people by global standards. 9 out of 10. The number of people in the United States living in extreme poverty by global standards is significantly less than 2%. Okay, environmental devastation. Where is this environmental devastation that you're talking about in the United States? The environment has been getting better for decades. I live in Los Angeles. The entire city used to be covered in a thick blanket of smog. The environment has been getting steadily better in the United States for years and years and years. And the war economy, what war economy? What war economy? Where exactly is the mass spending at, at you know, World War II levels? A war economy, normally you're talking about 40% of GDP being eaten up by the military. Right now you're talking about 20% of the American budget. Forget the GDP being eaten up by the military. And that's a fairly normal percentage for American history. But here is what this, uh, here is what William J. Barber contends. He says, all of these are the, the real sicknesses in America. He says, the question is not whether politicians condemn hate, but whether they promote the policy agenda of white supremacy. Since 2010, we have seen an assault on voting rights in numerous state legislatures, which the Supreme Court exacerbated in 2013 by gutting a crucial provision of the Voting Rights Act. Again, this is incorrect. The crucial provision of the Voting Rights Act had the federal government overseeing states based on maps that were drawn in 1965. And the, and, the, and the Supreme Court said those might be obsolete because it's 55 years later, guys. And this is apparently gutting of the Voting Rights Act. The states that attack voting rights by using partisan gerrymandering, discriminatory voter identification requirements, or a rollback of early voting and same-day registration are also home to the lowest wage, the severest poverty, the greatest hostility towards immigrants in the LGBT community, and the deepest cuts in education funding. Politicians who try to suppress voting are using their power to hurt the poor and the working class, white, brown, and black. There is no effort in the United States to suppress the vote. None. In 2008 and 2012, the black percentage of the voting base significantly outperformed the black percentage of the population. The number of people who are black who voted as a percentage was very, was very, very high in 2008 and 2012. They didn't show up for Hillary Clinton in 2016 because Hillary was a garbage candidate that no one wanted to vote for. And this is what the left can't accept. The left can't accept that Trump won. And so that means America is bad. Every time a Republican wins, America is a terrible place. Every time a Democrat wins, America is a wonderful place. America is a place of hope and change. It's amazing. The homeless just disappear from the news. You notice this. Every time there's a Republican who's president, the homeless reappear on the streets, just like magic. There were no homeless until Trump was president. There was no poverty until Trump was president. No racism until Trump was president. We were living in an Edenic age. And then the original sin. Hillary Clinton lost the, her bid for presidency of the United States. And that was the end. America was now enmeshed immediately. Like a light switch. Trump takes office in January and boom, environmental degradation. It's, it's like Logan's run, right? The entire country is being overrun by vines. We're killing our old. The, the young are being left out to die in the middle of the wilderness. It's soil and green. We're feeding people to other people, but packaging it as potato chips. This is the way that the left actually views the way that the, that the world works. Trump was elected and they have gone off their rocker. And this is why they're having such trouble gaining credibility with the American people. Because even if people don't like Trump, they can look at Democrats and say, you know, you keep saying things are so crazy and so terrible here, and they're really not so crazy and so terrible. And more importantly, 
it's not that you're saying the situation in America is bad. You're saying the people of America are bad. Because when you read that again, there is no way to read this without seeing a significant amount of anger at people in red states. Those people in red states are just rubes and morons. Those people in red states are corrupt and evil. Those people in red states are, are, are immigrant haters. This is a deep perspective in the Democratic Party. It's what Hillary Clinton has been saying when she goes abroad. America is a sexist, racist place. The intersectional politics being pushed by the left, this stuff is not going to work. Okay, This stuff is not going to attract people in the United States to voting Democrat. It's just not going to happen. And the fact that, the, the fact that folks on the left don't understand this is a particularly good reason why they, they could possibly not do well in the midterm elections when all the indicators would be pushing in their favor. Okay, so I want to read you the worst column on dating I have ever read. But first, I'm going to talk to you about Dollar Shave Club. So you need to go on a date and you don't want to look like a schlub. This is where Dollar Shave Club comes in. They deliver on everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. It's more than just razors. It's better than shopping in a store. They have razors, shave butter, shampoo, body wash, toothpaste, everything you need to look, feel, Smell your best. I have an amazing high-quality shave every morning with my doctor, with my Dollar Shave Club executive razor. I shave right here under the chin, and it is just magnificent. The Dr. Carver's Shave Butter is also fantastic. It's clear, so that means that you don't actually have to guess at where you are shaving, and then it turns out that you were shaving your arm when you meant to shave your chin. Instead, Dr. Carver's Shave Butter, it's, it's again, transparent, so you can see where you are shaving. And since DSE delivers everything to you, you never have to set foot in one of those stores again which saves you a lot of time and money considering every time I go to the local the local drugstore, my wife then sends me a list that I have to spend an hour searching the aisles for. No longer will that be an excuse. Now you can just order everything online with Dollar Shave Club. Clean up your bathroom and your morning routine. Join Dollar Shave Club today. And for just $5 with free shipping, you get the six-blade executive razor plus trial sizes of shave butter, body cleanser, and one-wipe Charlie's. Then keep the blades coming for a few bucks more a month. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash Ben. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash Ben. Use that slash Ben so they know that we sent you and also so that you get that special deal. Five bucks free shipping. You get all of those things and then keep the blades coming for a few bucks more a month. It really is a fantastic service. Dollarshaveclub.com slash Ben. Okay, so I have been giddy over this article for the better part of 24 hours. This is an article that appeared in the Washington Post. Now, the Washington Post has had some real doozies in the last 24 hours. They have a full article right now on the Washington Post on why it is good that Xi Jinping, who is the dictator of China, just declared himself, just declared himself dictator. And it's good, right? That he got rid of term limits and it's good. The actual title of the piece over at Washington Post is why Xi's lifting of term limits is a good thing. Okay, that, like, I know the Washington Post has released a series of articles of late talking about why communism is wonderful, but it's still a little bit disquieting when they are running full articles about why it is that a Chinese dictator taking full control of his country for the foreseeable future is a great thing. And it's weird that the Washington Post didn't run a similar thing about Vladimir Putin you know, rigging an election in, in Russia. Right? So they're, they're very anti-China and they're very pro, and they are very, very anti-Russia rather and very pro-China. So that's kind of weird. But that wasn't the worst editorial at the Washington Post. This one was, okay? It's by a woman named Carrie Purcell. Never heard of this lady. No idea who she is. Don't know her from Bob. I mean, she just she's a random person. A New York-based journalist who writes about theater, film, TV, and politics, which is to say she is a bore. Okay, so here is what she actually wrote. This is an amazing piece. It is perfect for Passover. And this is the title. You ready for this? I am tired of being a Jewish man's rebellion. What in the world? What in the world? I mean, can you imagine if somebody wrote a piece for the Washington Post, a white woman wrote a piece for the Washington Post titled, I am tired of being a black man's rebellion. And it was all about how black men were dating white women to sleep with them. 
and then ditched them for black women and it was time to get married. That's what this piece is about. And the reason I'm reading this piece is not just because you probably shouldn't be publishing full-scale anti-Semitism in the pages of the Washington Post, but also because this piece is a window into the mind of so many young people and how they date. It really is. So we're going to go through it because it's just, it's intensely amusing. So here is what, here is what Carrie Purcell, this genius says. At my very first job in New York, a colleague jokingly informed me, you came in a wasp, but you're leaving a Jew. That statement was in reference to the demographics of the office's staff. Almost everyone who worked there was Jewish, and I, a recent college graduate who had spent my adolescence in a largely Christian community in the South, was not. At the time, I had no idea she would end up being so right. Ooh, ominous. This is where you play the organ in the background softly. As a teenager, I attended exactly one bat mitzvah, but moving to New York provided endless opportunities to learn about the Jewish faith. Friends invited me to join their families for Passover seders and Hanukkah celebrations. However, it was through my various romantic relationships where I learned the most about Judaism, a religious faith and culture I have grown to love and respect, but that has also contributed to two of my biggest heartbreaks. Okay, so how did Judaism ruin her life? Uh, it's, it's amazing. Okay. Over almost seven years and two serious relationships with Jewish men who at first said religion didn't matter and then backtracked and decided it did, I've optimistically begun interfaith relationships with an open mind twice, only to become the last woman these men dated before settling down with a nice Jewish girl. This is in the pages of the Washington Post. I can now say with certainty, I am tired of being a Jewish man's rebellion. At first glance, I fulfill the stereotypes of a white, Anglo-Saxon Protestant. This woman writes, I'm blonde, often wear pearls, and can mix an excellent and very strong martini. Manners and etiquette are important to me, and when I'm stressed, I often cope by cleaning. I do describe myself as a Christian, but loosely and in the most liberal sense possible, of course, because if you're really a Christian, then presumably you would talk about values while dating somebody rather than, I don't know, living with some guy for three years and then realizing that you share no values and then he ditches you and finds someone with whom he shares values. He says, but if I did find myself falling for someone who did not share my spiritual views, I bring up the subject. If it's going to be a problem, I want to know. That's exactly what I did in my previous long-term relationships, both of which were with Jewish men. And both men said it wasn't a problem that I was Christian as they considered themselves culturally but not spiritually Jewish. At the very least, they were the most lackadaisical Jews I'd ever met. They never fasted on Yom Kippur or observed Jewish holidays on their own. And when they traveled to celebrate holidays with their families, they made it clear it was an obligation rather than a choice. On more than one occasion in conversation, we laughed about the fact that I knew more about the Jewish faith than they did. I knew having an interfaith relationship could be complicated, and if we stayed together, there would be some difficulties. But I thought it could work. Neither of us were looking to convert the other. We respected each other's faith and culture. And as long as we were able to talk about it, I thought we'd be able to work through any issues that came up. And then she cites a bunch of statistics about interfaith marriages. She doesn't cite the statistic about the divorce rate in interfaith marriages, which is significantly higher than the divorce rate in non-interfaith marriages. So she, this is always the inconvenient part of the interfaith marriage discussion. You know, I, I feel this way about interpolitical dating. I was asked recently on a college campuses whether conservatives on a college campus whether a conservative could date a leftist. I say you can date them, don't marry them. And I feel the same way about a leftist. Okay, if you're a leftist and you believe deeply in social justice. You probably don't want to marry the guy who's a deep devotee of Frederick Hayek. It's just not going to go well. You're not going to want to raise your kids in the same way. You're not going to have the same social values. But again, this is what happens when you have a society that is very much focused on sex and very much focused on the surface of, of relationships, just having fun and going on dates and reading the New York Times together. But there's no real discussion of the kind of future you want to have together other than you want to have brunch on Sunday mornings and, and read the New Yorker. Okay, if that's your perception of how a relationship goes, you know nothing about relationships, but we're a society that has largely discarded the deeper meaning of relationships, which is rooted in values and purpose. A life is rooted in values and purpose. You want to live a fulfilled, meaningful life? You must have a telos in the Greek terminology. You must have a purpose. The same thing is true of a relationship. Everything you do 
that is important in your life should have a purpose. If you feel aimless at your job, you don't like your job, you have to have a purpose. If you feel aimless in your relationship, you're not going to like your relationship. Your relationship must have a higher goal or purpose. You're building something together. On my first date with my wife, unlike this lady who apparently waits three years to discuss serious questions about religion because it might be awkward. You know, you have to sleep together for a couple of years first and then have the serious conversations just like they do in the movies. On my first date with my wife, we talked about free will and determinism. Okay, first date for three hours. And then we talked about how many kids we wanted to have and whether or not we wanted to send our kids to a particular school or a different school. Okay, this is on our first date because we were dating for marriage, right? We were dating in order so that we would be pushing toward the next generation. The purpose of marriage is childbearing and child rearing. One of the things you find so, I find so interesting about all of these columns, there is never a mention ever of children. Never. That's the purpose of marriage, by the way. Because if the purpose of marriage is just getting together with somebody that you love and you want to have sex with and you want to live together, then you can love and have sex and hang out with that person without getting married. Right there, you don't have to build anything. You can just live with that person until it becomes convenient or interesting to move on to another person. But when it comes time to commit, people want to commit to people they feel a common purpose with. Okay, but that's not what this lady is writing. She writes about uh, her tense moments in these relationships. She says, one of their mothers, she's dating Jewish guys, one of their mothers was extremely overbearing, somehow getting my cell phone number and calling me, asking where her son was. I didn't know where he was, and her calling made me incredibly uncomfortable. I asked my boyfriend how she got my number. He swore he didn't give it to her, and I told him I didn't want this kind of involvement to be part of our relationship. When he talked to her about it, she exploded yelling, if she were Jewish, she'd understand. I wasn't invited to the seders that his family held, despite my saying I loved attending them with my friends. There were times at church I saw couples worshiping together and felt pangs of jealousy. But I told myself every relationship had its problems, and these were relatively minor. Well, maybe it should have been a hint to you that when you were at church and you saw couples worshiping together, that could be you if you pick someone who has a culture closer to your own. There, is, there, there are important differences between religions. There are important differences between methods of thought and values. Okay? If you want to marry someone and have a successful marriage, you must have a common set of values. The best part of this article is the very end of it. Okay, here, here's what it says. In the meantime, I'll continue dating and meeting my friends, Jewish and not, to swap Tinder horror stories over drinks. Hopefully, while sipping the cocktail, I'm determined to create named A Jewish Man's Rebellion. I'd like it to feature a bourbon base and be garnished with a slice of bacon. All right, Lenny Reifenstahl, calm down there. Just amazing, amazing stuff in the pages of the Washington Post. But again, it says something about dating. In dating for, for my generation, maybe the, maybe the boomers on, the focus has been on personal pleasure at the expense of values. And not only that, the focus has been on blaming everyone else except for yourself when you set stupid standards for your own dating. This is her fault. Okay, it's her fault. She picked the guy. It didn't work out. That's partially her fault. When you pick the wrong person, it is partially your fault. There are some cases where the person is a sociopath and it's not your fault if things go wrong. But she did it twice with apparently two very similar guys, and then it fell apart both times. Maybe her decision-making process is the problem. Maybe she's making bad dating decisions, and maybe instead of blaming the Jews for your bad dating, you might think about picking a better dating strategy, you silly, silly idiot. Okay, so uh, in, a, in a second, uh, I want to discuss the worst tweet of the day. Okay, worst tweet of the day. But first, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Chappaquiddick. So, Okay, this movie is just phenomenal. This movie is just great. Uh, I can't speak more highly of it than that. Uh, the movie Chappaquiddick opens in theaters April 6th. It is the story of one of the great American crime cover-ups of all time. Obviously, Ted Kennedy killed Mary Jo Kopechne. Okay, I don't know any other way to put it. Uh, I don't know if it's murder. I don't know if it's manslaughter. But it's certainly at the very least a manslaughter. And the fact that he didn't go to jail for manslaughter, let's put it this way. If I drove off a bridge with a woman in my car and then I left for 12 hours and didn't call the cops and then when they came back, 
She had not drowned. She had suffocated in the air bubble at the top of the car. Okay, and the top of the car was visible above the water. Okay, the, the, the wheels of the car were visible above the water, meaning that all Ted Kennedy had to do was get out of the car and call the cops, and they would have been there in 10 minutes, and they would have gotten Mary Jo Kopechny out of the car. That's all he had to do. Instead, he went home and went to sleep. He didn't go to jail for a day, for a day, because the entire law enforcement mechanism was working on behalf of the Kennedys. This movie makes that very, very clear. So here's why you should see the movie, besides the fact that it is gripping and well-acted and well-written and factual. Okay, there's no speculation. It's all factual. You should watch this movie because we here at The Ben Shapiro Show talk routinely about the importance of supporting conservative film and TV, that you need to actually support conservative entertainment. You want to whine and bitch and moan about the entertainment industry? Well, that means you actually have to support conservative films when they come out, or even films that are not conservative, but factually tell stories that are important to conservatives. This is one of them. Critics have described Chappaquiddick as edge-of-your-seat suspenseful. It's got a top-line cast. I mean, it's Jason Clark, Kate Mara, Ed Helms, Jim Gaffigan, Bruce Dern. These are all A-list actors, and the film is really, really good. Chappaquiddick is in theaters everywhere April 6th. It's got my full endorsement, and it would have my full endorsement whether or not they were advertising with us. It is that good a movie. Check out Chappaquiddick April 6th. Bring all your friends. Demonstrate to Hollywood that if they make films that appeal to people who are outside of Hollywood, maybe they will do a little bit better. Okay, so in a second, I'm going to tell you about the worst tweet of the day. But first, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com and subscribe. For $9.99 a month, you too can get a subscription to dailywire.com. That means you get the rest of this show live, the rest of Clavin's show live, the rest of Michael Knowles' show live. It also means that you get to be part of the conversation. So what is the conversation, you ask? Well, the conversation is when we have these long Q&A sessions with our various hosts. The next one is coming up April 10th, 5.30 p.m. Eastern, 2.30 p.m. Pacific. If you haven't yet joined it, it's that monthly Q&A hosted by Alicia Krauss. And this month's episode features our very own Andrew Clavin. It streams live at our YouTube and also at our Facebook page. It's free for everybody to watch. But if you want to ask questions, if you want to be part of the conversation, part of the debate, well, that's why you need to subscribe. Because you log in at dailywire.com, you start typing your question into the chat box, and we'll ask it live to Andrew Clavin and get his answers. Once again, subscribe to get those questions answered by Drew. Tuesday, April 10th, 5.30 p.m. Eastern, 2.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the conversation. Also, if you want the annual subscription, it's a better deal. All these subscriptions help us bring you the show every day and help us bring you our site, Daily Wire, every day, as well as the rest of the great content we bring you. Check it out. $99 a year gets you that annual subscription. And when you do that, you get the magical, never-bested, leftist tears, hot or cold tumbler. It's just magnificent in every possible way. You get all of that with the annual subscription. If you want to listen to the show for free later, go over to YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, subscribe, leave us a review. We always appreciate it. We are the largest, fastest-growing conservative show in the nation. Okay, so I'd be remiss if I did not read you the worst tweet of the day. So following on the worst dating article uh, in recent memory from the Washington Post, the worst tweet of the day, this one comes courtesy of someone named Nikki Glaser. Now, Nikki Glaser, I don't even know who this person is. I guess she's on Comedy Central. Uh, she's a comedian on Comedy Central. But when people on the left suggest that people on the right are true fascists, um, all I have to do is read you this tweet to demonstrate just how fascist some folks on the left are. You ready for this? It's about Donald Trump Jr. So Donald Trump Jr. and his wife are getting a divorce. It's tragic. Okay, When people who are married and have kids are getting divorced, it's tragic. It's not tragic when you don't have kids. When you don't have kids, your business. When you have kids, it's tragic. Now there are third parties involved. Here's what Nikki Glaser tweeted. Quote, Don Jr. and his wife have five kids. No one should be having five kids. Why are people still allowed to have five kids? Okay, they're Mal. Why should people still be allowed to have five kids? So it, it's the perspective of the left that you should be able to put your willy anywhere you please, right? In anyone, tree, rock, people, it doesn't matter, right? That should go anywhere. But if you decide to sire children and rear them, and you can afford to do so, and it has no externalities, 
You should not be allowed to have five children because children are evil, do you understand? And we have to stop you from having five children. Why should, why are people still allowed to have, have five kids? How about this, Nikki? You have zero. Okay, you start. You can, I would prefer that you have no kids. Okay, you start. Sterilization, go for it, all you. As for me, I'll be having as many kids as I damn well please because as a human being, I feel the necessity of passing along the species to the next generation and passing along important values to that next generation. You want to know why in the end leftist values are going to lose? Because so many of these leftists are not even having children. <laughs> if you don't have kids, that means there are fewer children in the next generation who are going to embrace your set of values. But I mean, talk about fascists. They want to take your guns and then they want to ask you why you should be allowed to have children. That's not scary in any way. That's not eugenic in any way. Just unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Well, speaking uh, of some silliness and stupidity, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Jill McCabe. Jill McCabe is the, the wife of Andrew McCabe. Andrew McCabe is, of course, a former FBI deputy director. And Jill McCabe is his wife and is an emergency room pediatrician. And she wrote an entire op-ed at the Washington Post about why Donald Trump was being mean to her. And she says that Donald Trump was mean to her and Andrew McCabe. You'll remember Andy McCabe, the deputy FBI director, was fired by the Trump administration in the aftermath of an inspector general report that suggested that Andrew McCabe had lied to the investigators about talking to the media. And that DOJ investigator general report was a nonpartisan report. It did not come from the Trump partisan wing of the DOJ. The inspector general over there is someone Trump has openly criticized before. They recommended that McCabe be fired based on his malfeasance in office. Well, Joe McCabe is in the Washington Post now defending her husband and suggesting that there was no politics surrounding her husband. One of the big questions about McCabe, as you'll recall, is that McCabe was overseeing the Hillary investigation at the same time that his wife was receiving money from Terry McAuliffe, the governor of Virginia and a Hillary Clinton ally. And it was pretty clearly a conflict of interest. Even other FBI agents who didn't like Trump, people like Lisa, Str Lisa Page and Carter, uh, Carter Page and Lisa Strzok, uh, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. Thank you. The, the, those FBI agents who were having an affair with each other, they were tweeting to each other, they were texting to each other that they wished that McCabe would step down and recuse himself from the Hillary investigation and from the Trump investigation because of his wife's ties to the Democratic Party. Well, now she has a full piece in the Washington Post suggesting that she is a victim of evil, evil Trump. Now, Trump has said some nasty things about her because he's Trump. I mean, this is what he does. Like, are we going to pretend that Trump doesn't say nasty things about people? He does it all the time. But she's suggesting that her husband is clean as the driven snow. And this is not true. Okay, it is true that her husband actually used his government email address in order to forward her political campaign at the same time that he was investigating Hillary Clinton. But again, the media is only interested in certain types of scandals. So the media is very interested, for example, right now in the scandal surrounding Scott Pruitt, who's the head of the EPA. He looks like he may be on his way out because Scott Pruitt uh, apparently was using government funds for, the, for vacationing and using government security for his wife at Disney World or some such. You know, corruption is corruption and is wrong. And if Scott Pruitt did that, then he should go. But it's amazing the double standard that is held by the media, that Scott Pruitt is obviously super duper corrupt. But Andy McCabe, who has apparently raised something like $500,000 online from people who are just sympathetic to his plight, that this is that, that he's some sort of great hero. It just demonstrates how our entire politics has been a series of planets revolving around the great son of Trump. Uh, and therefore, everything has to be viewed through the prism of Trump. And it seems to me corruption should be viewed just as corruption. If you're corrupt, you're corrupt, right or left. This isn't very simple. It isn't a very difficult proposition. Okay, meanwhile, uh, President Trump has been on an epic spree of good Trump, bad Trump. So as you know, here on the Ben Shapiro Show, we are the designers of good Trump, bad Trump. 
And good Trump, bad Trump is our, is our mechanism for viewing the Trump administration and President Trump in particular, because Trump does a lot of good things and he does a lot of bad things. We even have a theme song for it. Here we go. Time for some good Trump, bad Trump. Okay, so some things he does are good. Some things he does are bad. Who knows? It's a game show. So here are the things that he did. Here's something that he did that was good. So yesterday, as I mentioned, the president went off on this caravan of illegal immigrants who were making their way to the United States through Mexican territory. Well, today, it turns out, according to the Washington Post, the Mexican government on Monday evening moved to break up the caravan of immigrants traveling through southern Mexico with immigration officials registering the travelers and suggesting some could receive humanitarian visas while others would have to leave Mexico. The caravan estimated at more than 1,000 migrants came from Central America and has gained increasing visibility because of tweets by President Trump that have criticized Mexico for not doing more to stop the flow of migrants to the southern border of the United States. The bulk of the migrant group, part of an annual caravan intended to raise awareness about the plight of people making the dangerous trek across Mexico toward the United States, is currently in the town of Matias Romero Avendano in the southern state of Oaxaca. A portion of the group rode by train to the neighboring state of Veracruz, according to caravan organizers, but it's unclear whether it has dispersed at this point. And I love this. Mexico's interior ministry said in a statement, under no circumstances does the government of Mexico promote irregular migration. The statement said the caravan has taken place every year since 2010 and that 400 people in the group have already been deported. Okay, let's be clear about this. If Trump does not tweet over and over and over, there is not this immediate high profile move by the Mexican government to break up the caravan. Right, this is pretty obvious. So good for Trump for pointing all of that out. So there, there's some good Trump for you. The bad Trump for you is that the stock market took a serious dive yesterday. And one of the reasons the stock market is taking a dive and going up and down like a yo-yo is because of all the volatility and unpredictability coming out of the Trump administration with regard to the economy. So it's down 500 points yesterday. It is up today a little bit, but it's, it's amazing to watch. Trump is all over the place on the economy. His, his worst move, his bad Trump move today was ripping into Amazon. Now, I think Amazon is a great American company. It is. And, you, and this idea that Amazon and Washington Post are part of some sort of evil consortium in order to get Trump is just stupid. Okay, Amazon is an American company that employs tens of thousands of people, allows tens of thousands of more people to be employed by selling via Amazon as their common carrier, essentially. But Trump is attacking Amazon because he doesn't like Jeff Bezos. This is tin pot stuff. Okay, the president of the United States should not be targeting particular companies particularly not on the silly basis that Trump is doing. He tweeted out today, quote, I am right about Amazon costing the U.S. post office massive amounts of money for being their delivery boy. Okay, first of all, I'm pretty sure that the post office is definitionally your delivery boy. That is literally their job. Their literal job is to be your delivery boy. They have no other job. It is to deliver your mail. So when he says that Amazon is treating the post office as a delivery boy, that's like saying that Amazon is treating Baskin Robbins as its ice cream manufacturing shop. Like, yes, that's what they do. And then he says, Amazon should pay these costs plus and not have them borne by the American taxpayer. Born, B-O-U-R-N-E, like Jason Bourne. Many billions of dollars, P.O., leaders don't have a clue. Or do they? Post office leaders don't have a clue, or do they? Okay, a couple of things worth noting. This is non-factual. It is non-factual. In 2006, there was a bill passed into law that says the post office is not allowed to run a loss on package deliveries. Every package delivery must come at a profit, according to federal law from 2006 on. Amazon uses bulk rates. Everyone uses bulk rates. We at Daily Wire use bulk rates. Bulk rates have been a thing for literally my entire lifetime. 
Amazon is not taking advantage of the post office. The post office is run stupidly because it's a bad government agency that should have been put out of its misery years and years and years ago. So President Trump uh, sent Amazon stock into a bit of a tailspin. They've recovered now, but all of this is just silliness. The president shouldn't be doing any of this. The economy is going great. Mr. Mr. President, please, please just stop. Just stop. Focus on the things that you know how to, how to change. Focus on immigration. Okay, focus on the wall. Focus on the promises you made to the people who voted for you. Don't focus on Jeff Bezos. Don't focus on Amazon. You really think that targeting Amazon is going to do you any favors? All it's going to do is tank the stock market. All it's going to do is provide a feeling of chaos and uncertainty that is not going to help the economy. Your main pitch right now is that you may not like me, but you like the economy, don't you? That's a, that's a pretty good pitch. But it's not going to be a good pitch if you start putting your thumb like, like Jack Horner into the pie and digging around for a plum. You're not going to come up with a plum. It's going to be something that smells far worse. Please, Mr. President, do not do this. It is a waste of time. It is just foolish. All right, so time for a couple of things I like and then some things that I hate. So let's jump right into things I like. So on the way uh, to these, this beautiful vacation spot, you may be wondering why I'm filming from apparently the set of a porno film. Uh, but it, the, the reason that I am filming here is because my family and I uh, go to a Passover retreat every year. And while we were driving, my entire family was asleep. So I was in the car and bored. And so I put on uh, a, an old Stephen Sondheim musical called Company. If you've never seen Company, uh, it's, it's one of Sondheim's earlier musicals, which is to say it's better. One of the things about, about Sondheim is that Sondheim has steadily declined in quality over the course of his career. So his high point was Sweeney Todd, and then he followed that up with Into the Woods and Sunday in the Park with George, both of which are good. And then he decided that anything that he did that was popular had by nature to be kind of boob bait, that, that it was, if people liked it, that meant it wasn't very good. So he started doing more and more obscure things. He did Assassins, which is about people who assassinated presidents, and each one is like a pastiche number. But Company is a, a very interesting musical, I'm, I'm trying to remember the year that it was written, uh, in which Sondheim discusses the issue of marriage. And the, and the entire issue of marriage, according to Sondheim, is it's, it's conflicting, and you're trapped, but at the same time, you want to be trapped. And the, the story is about this guy named Robert, who is, who's played by Dean Jones. You'll remember Dean Jones as the guy from The Love Bug, but actually he can sing, right? Younger audiences will remember him from Beethoven. He's the evil doctor from the movie Beethoven, um, but actually he's a, he's a good actor and he can sing. And the story is Robert, who is a single guy, and he has a bunch of married friends, and they're constantly having him over as company. And it's about his relationships with them and him, them trying to discourage him from getting married, but encourage him to get married and all of this. So here is the kind of climactic number in which he suggests that, all of his life as a single dude may not be worth it. Maybe he just needs to make a call. Someone to hold you too close. Someone to hurt you too deep. Someone to sit in your chair to ruin your sleep. That's very famous, yeah. That all you think there is to it? You've got so many reasons for not being with someone, but Robert, you haven't one good reason for being alone. Come on, you're onto something, Bobby. You're onto something. Someone to need you too much. Someone to know you too well. Someone to pull you up short, to put you through hell. You see what you look for, you know. You're not a kid anymore, Robbie. I don't think you'll ever be a kid again, kiddo. Hey, buddy, don't be afraid that it won't be perfect. The only thing to be afraid of really is that it won't be. Don't stop now. Keep going. Someone you have to let in. 
Someone whose feelings you spare. Someone who, like it or not, will want you to share a little, a lot. And what does all that mean? It's really, it's really interesting. And what, what's, what's fascinating about this, we can stop it there, but one, one of the things that's fascinating about this musical, when, and I was listening to it now, is that when you listen to this as a single person, you think, yeah, this is what marriage is, right? What marriage is, is about finding someone in this kind of existential loneliness and clinging to that person because you have to, because what other choice do you have in life unless you just want to bounce around as an atomistic individual? But the thing about the, the musical is that, as I was saying before about relationship advice, nowhere in here does anyone say, what is the purpose of the marriage? What is the, th this gives you a good reason for, for falling in love with someone, but it doesn't give you a good reason for building a marriage with someone. Because half the musical is, co is comedy about how much marriage sucks, right? People getting divorced and people having affairs and all this kind of stuff. But the real purpose of marriage is something that's not even discussed in the musical because people in modern Western society do not even discuss this in the context of marriage. And that is children. I now have two kids. I'm, I'm a young guy. I'm 34. I have two kids. I have one who's four and one who's almost two. And the purpose of the marriage, even in the years when my wife and I were, did not have kids, we were married for six years before we had children. Even when, when we, were, we, we were dating, we understood that the purpose of building a strong foundation with each other is so that this foundation would be there for our children. And this is not present when you listen to company. When you listen to company, somebody has to make an affirmative case to you why you should give up promiscuity or just living together uh, and, and instead make a final commitment to somebody and say, this is why I should make the final commitment. And the best case that they can make at the end of the musical is because it's better than the alternatives, right? That's, that's really what he's saying in that song. He's saying, you know, th th that's actually said by one of the other characters to Dean Jones in that song, to Robert's character in that song. They actually say, You're, you have a lot of reasons not to do it, but you have no reasons, but, but you have no reasons, you know, basically, there are lots of reasons that you have why you shouldn't get married, but the worst reason of all not to get married is because you're scared, right? You should just get married because you really have no other choice in life but to make that call. But you do have other choices, obviously. And you can't form a relationship based on this is the second worst thing. Okay, a relationship is not the second worst thing. A relationship is the best thing because it's a part of building. It is forward-looking. Okay, people tend to see marriage as the end of things. Marriage is the end of your dating life. You can't sow your wild oats anymore. And as long as you see marriage as, the, as, as, a, as an end, as a wall at the end of your, your single journey, and then it's supposed to be happily ever after from there, you're not seeing marriage in its proper life. Marriage is what launches you into the next step of your journey in a far more dramatic fashion than staying single. As I've said, even on a personal emotional level, forget about the spiritual, forget about the religious, on a personal emotional level, there have been three stages in my, in my life, right? There was, there was being single, there was getting married, not having kids, and then there was having kids. And the way that it works is when you're single, your high point, like your, your highest point of ecstasy is about a seven, and your lowest point is about a two. Right? And it feels like a zero, but it really is a two. Okay, Once you get married, then your high point goes to about a 10, and your low point goes to about a zero. Right, Because if something happens to your spouse, it is just awful, much, much worse than when you were single and something bad happened to you. Then when you have kids, your high point goes to 1,000, and your low point goes to negative infinity. Okay, Because when something bad happens to your child, it is the worst thing ever. But this is what helps you grow as a human being. Because you are now responsible for something beyond yourself, something that can't take care of itself, and something you have to shape and mold. You are now part of a world-building experience. You're building a world, right? You're building an entire world in your children, and the purpose of marriage is to set the foundations. It's to set the granite at the base of that building so that you can build that world. And when you don't view it that way, then marriage just becomes something that you do because you have no better alternative. So I think company does a good job of exposing that, even if that's not really what it's meant to expose. 
I think the marriage that is proposed by company is not utterly fulfilling because it ignores what marriage is actually there to do. Okay, time for a very quick thing that I hate. Okay, so there's a, a study from Ohio State University that has just come out showing that fake news probably played a significant role in depressing Hillary Clinton's support on election day. This is not a good study. A lot of these studies are just bad. So what does the study do? It's not, first of all, it's not peer reviewed. So that means already we, we should have a little bit of skepticism about it. But it suggests that about 4% of Barack Obama's 2012 supporters were dissuaded from voting for Hillary by belief in fake news stories. So how did they measure this? Well, the study's authors inserted three popular fake news stories from 2016 into a 281-question YouGov survey given to a sample that included 585 Obama supporters, according to the Washington Post, 23% of whom didn't vote for Clinton, either by abstaining or picking another candidate. 10% voted for Trump, which is in line with other estimates. So here are the false stories. Clinton was in very poor health due to serious illness. Pope Francis endorsed Trump. Clinton improved weapon sales to Islamic jihadists, including ISIS. <clears throat> then says, overall, about one quarter of 2012 Obama voters believed at least one of these stories. And of that group, just 45% voted for Clinton, compared to 89% who believed none of the three. So the suggestion is that it was the fake news stories that pushed them. This is idiotic. Okay, the reason that they believed the fake news stories is because they didn't like Hillary Clinton. People believe what they want to believe about particular candidates. Again, people didn't like Hillary. It wasn't that they were like, oh, I love Hillary, but oh, look at that. Pope endorsed Trump. Now I guess that I'm changing my opinion. That's not what happened here. Or I loved Hillary, but then I heard that story about how she sold weapons to ISIS. Okay, there was not a Hillary supporter in America who believed that Hillary Clinton sold weapons to ISIS, but there were a lot of people who thought Hillary Clinton was a corrupt charlatan. And so when somebody said she sold weapons to ISIS, they probably went, oh, maybe. And then those were the people who were least likely to vote for her anyway. So the emphasis on fake news is designed to crack down on social media, to push social media to crack down on alternative sources of news that are not approved by the mainstream media. That's why I hate studies like this. That's why I think that they are being thrown out there at such a fast clip by members of the mainstream media in the first place. Okay, we'll be back here tomorrow with all the latest. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Mathis Glover, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay. Our technical producer is Austin Stevens, edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Caromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So... I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 